Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tell Me About Your Father, a new podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. The show is created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Matthew Philp, and Elizabeth Thompson, all of whom are writers, all of whom have their own father stories to tell. Tell Me About Your Father features intimate interviews with a range of fascinating and influential people. The show aims to unpack all facets of the father. The loving, the ambivalent, the supportive, the fiscally irresponsible, the obscenely wealthy, the dead and the living, the fathers who have built us up, and the dads who have let us down. Listen to the premiere season, seven episodes of Tell Me About Your Father, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also find all episodes of the show at tellmeaboutyourfather.com, and additional content is available on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Tell me about your father. It's a new podcast. Go get it. All right. Hello, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you? Are you doing okay? I hope you are. I hope you're okay. I have Amanda Goldblatt on the program today. She has a new novel out on Counterpoint Press. It is called Hardmouth, and it has been earning rave reviews. Amanda Goldblatt and I in conversation momentarily. I had a great time talking with her. I should note that we recorded prior to Shelter in Place. So she was here. She came over and uh, sat down with me, and it was delightful. You're going to hear my conversation with Amanda in just a second. Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press, and their new hotly anticipated release, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by the poet Nikki Finney. This is a minglement of poems, observations, fictions, and treasured artifacts. It is Nikki Finney's first book since Head Off and Split, which won the National Book Award for Poetry. Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry is available wherever books are sold from Northwestern University Press. Once again, the name of the book is Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by Nikki Finney. So go get that. A listener named Taylor writes, Hey Brad, I must admit I got choked up towards the end of episode 637 when you talked about Megan Boyle's talent and your sincere concern for her health and well-being. 
and about your real admiration for her now. It really highlighted and was another reminder of the sometimes miraculous way that people confront their addiction and day-by-day struggle to dig and understand what's going on mentally as well as physically. I also think Megan Boyle's live blog project and her current live blog are comparable to your podcast. They both create specific everyday diary-like entries, live blogs certainly, and other people in the monologues that form a community by way of the personal and add to the larger project of reaching out and saying, you're not alone, here is my experience. They both are odd ways of service and wrestling with harder truths and pulling people together and creating a space that wasn't there before, which I really, really appreciate. Thanks, Taylor. Well, thank you, Taylor. I appreciate the kind note. I enjoyed talking with Megan Boyle, and I've gotten a lot of nice feedback from people, many of whom tell me that they got choked up. I've been getting a lot of that. Uh, I'll be honest, I almost got a little choked up there at the end, too, when I was talking to her. It's good that she is doing so well, and I really do believe she's a great talent, and um, I don't know. I just, uh, I loved talking with her, and I'm happy that she's healthy. A listener named Nathan says, Hi, Brad. I'm writing to you from Tucson right now. I usually listen to your show at work, and I mostly work in a greenhouse by myself. Succulents, cacti, veggies. I spend a couple of hours every day keeping them alive or trying to. No contact with people, though, because of social distancing, and then it's immediately home. I actually started listening to other people because my partner, Ray, recommended it. Long story short, we worked on a farm in western Massachusetts a few years ago and could have headphones. We had plenty of time to listen, so we've both been fans and listeners for a few years now. I wanted to write to you because one of the letters you received recently struck me. Someone asked about what they should read because they wanted to get into poetry. I love to hear that you were reading David Berman's Actual Air. It's probably my favorite book of all time, and his album Purple Mountains was also great and classically Berman. I hope that uh, that the person in question who asked about poetry gets the book. There's something about the way that Berman writes that makes you think you're missing out on some kind of wisdom and you want to know. But it also feels like it's much simpler than that. It's accessible. It's beautiful. Sad. Funny. Take care. Hope you and your family are well. Sign Nathan. All right, Nathan, I like this visual of you working uh, in a greenhouse in the desert and listening to my show and, like, tending to uh, succulents. As for David Berman, the late David uh, David Berman, I, he's just a huge loss. And uh, I don't know. I've, I've been a fan of his for a long time, and it was, uh, it was just a heartbreaker when uh, we lost him last summer. He had a long battle with uh, mental illness, it seems like. There's too much of that, right? I feel like we're talking about this a lot. But uh, I probably, you know, I don't typically listen to albums anymore in the modern way. You know, I just listen to some, like, playlist on Spotify or something. But I do listen to his albums. And I think I probably have listened to uh, the Purple Mountains album, like, a thousand times. And... I could talk I want to like actually like write an essay about this album because it's a really sad album in so many ways. It's a really predictive album in retrospect in a way that's kind of uh, crushing, but it is also it has this weird ebullience to it. There's a there's a kind of triumphal spirit in it or something. 
And for somebody who was feeling as bad as David Berman was feeling, and by the way, I'm now thinking to myself, have I already talked about this? Have I already done this monologue? That's how much I think about how much I like this album and why. But anyway, I, I think some people might listen to the Purple Mountains album and be like, damn, this is bleak. But at the same time, the music uh, is happy. There's something happy inside of it. And to me, uh, I think I take some heart in that. I feel like there is a kind of triumph in that, that he was wrestling with these dark feelings, but he found a way to make it into uh, beautiful art that is ultimately affirming and, uh, for the most part, fun. There are a couple tracks on that album that are just real sad, but the other ones are funny, like darkly funny, but funny. And to me, that is the most heroic kind of art, when people take the dark stuff of their lives and they transmute it. There's a lot of courage in that, and uh, there's a lot of hope in that. And there's a lot of art in that. It's not easy to do. So thanks for writing, Nathan. I appreciate it. Thanks to everybody for writing. If you're out there and you want to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. My guest today is Amanda Goldblatt. Her new novel, Hardmouth, is out there now from Counterpoint Press. Great to meet her. Great to talk with her. Excited to share this conversation with you now. Here she is. This is Amanda Goldblatt. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I was really careful about managing my expectations because, you know, I was uh, 36 when my debut novel came out, which is not old no, at all. No. But I had been around a lot of friends who had published at younger ages. And so I'd spent a lot of time just like watching their experiences and just had a lot of information That's going good, into though. things. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, but it also meant like I always knew, or not always, but often knew like w- what wasn't happening and what was happening. Um, you mean so, from a, like a book sales standpoint or he, from a marketing or I all? kept myself away from sales, but yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like, um, things about publicity and things like that. Um, so I knew sort of understood that I felt grateful for the, or feel grateful for the reception of the book. And I wasn't expecting, I was never, I had a, um, my grad school mentor or one of them, Catherine Davis, uh, at WashU sat me down at some point on a, during a one-on-one meeting. Wait, WashU, like Washington, St. Louis? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, she was like, well, Amanda, you're never going to be on the bestseller list. Um, and I, you know, that kind of, when someone says something like that to you, you hold on to it. And she was saying it because, you know, um, my work's a little weird. It's very voicey. Um, and, my intention isn't the bestseller list, certainly. Like, that's not my career aim. Um, I think I decided a long time ago that I would rather make the art that I wanted to make than make money off of my art if I had to choose, which it seems like often you do, most of the time you do, or you don't get to choose. You just It just is one or the other. I guess sometimes they coalesce. Yes, absolutely. And certainly I've seen that happen, and that's exciting. Um I'm thinking like uh, Reese Kwan and the incendiaries. Um, her language is so beautiful. And I think it's something that there, there was a lot that happened, you know, that aligned in order to make that book huge. Um, but also I think she was able to really hold on to her, 
her language roots and what was really exciting yeah. for her creatively. Yeah. I had her in here it was yeah. a while ago, I think within the last year, if my brain is still working. Certainly. Um, well, hopefully. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's always a fascination. It's like, it's always inspiring and like super interesting when that needle gets threaded. For sure. Like somebody who has, um, you know, who has literary ambition or who's tried to make high art, but also write something that winds up resonating with a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and who can predict that? No, who say, I, who knows? Maybe you'll wind up on the bestseller list. I mean, sure, but I'm not, I'm not like waiting for it. I feel like I have a lot of friends who are poets and that's, that was true, you know, from, I finished grad school in like 2009, so it's been a while. And, but when I showed up at grad school, they were sort of socially culturally my people and so i've understood my relationship to my work more maybe more like a poet than a typical like fiction right sort of like, like fiction writer too. you you like poets yeah. too yeah they're outstanding they're really good at community that's something I, I i really admire um i think like poetry communities and the way that they write often write in conversation uh with one another's work because of they're like working in smaller units it's uh like a more it can be a more fleet process um they're really spending time doing things like writing reviews and like creative reviews not simply just like straightforward um awareness based evaluative reviews um and it just feels like your creative practice isn't then just writing it's also building community and putting your work in context with others and i think that's really exciting and something that i have noticed about publishing like a novel um is that it feels you feel a little bit more siloed i'm used to like a like a re, like a micropress feel of things and when you know you're it, you're working with a slightly bigger press you know i love counterpoint um, they were so good to me throughout the whole process. Um, but it does feel like this is like, this is your time and your book and you're focusing on you and your work. And, um, I think that it, it just made me think about my priorities with regards to community and like what I wanted my artistic life to be shaped like. Well, that's good that you had that insight when you were relatively young. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it is good to get clear about those kinds of things. I think along I think a lot of people can get pretty far downstream without having a, a solid idea of what they want yeah. their lives to look like. Or I think sometimes it can be hard to reconcile oneself or, or like reconcile competing interests within oneself. Like the desire to say, live a creative life and make your living from sure. your creative work. That doesn't necessarily always jive with wanting to make the art that you want to make. For sure. You know, um, I was talking to somebody recently about, um, John Grisham. Yeah. They had been to see him speak or something. And he was just like, yeah, like, I, I just wanted to make a fuckload of money, sell some books. Yeah. And he's got like great shoes and you know, <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. I think more often than not <laughs> people who have that happen to them, happen to them who make that happen like their priority is like yeah i would like to make money um on my art and i don't poo poo that but it's just not i know that that's bad for my work once i start if i'm like composing and i'm thinking about publishing it's like dead immediately yeah um and a lot of 
the time since the book was published and sort of trying, working to get back into my writing practice has been just trying to remove that awareness, that like new awareness. Yeah. That makes, uh, that makes sense to me. I think, uh, I was actually writing, uh, working on my book not too long ago or thinking about my book. And one of the things I told myself is like, you know, when I'm drafting, I have got to turn my brain off better. Um, I'm too fucking neurotic. I'm self-analyzing as I'm trying to compose. It doesn't work. Like you sort of have to shut the world out and just let it go. Like, I think I'm coming around to that as like a part of the process for me. Like, I think it's sort of tied to this notion of writing a shitty first draft, sure. like freeing yourself. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of resisted that. Cause I'm like, well then you just write a lazy draft right? cause you get too permissive and you're like, Oh, it's all just, I'll fix it later. Then yeah. you just wind up writing a big pile of shit. I don't and then to... you have to go look at it. Yeah. It's like, what is this? But like, if you take it too far in the other direction where you're like, I'm going to try to do the best I can on the first draft, then you can wind up tightening, you know, you tighten internally and you don't necessarily give yourself an opportunity to kind of get into like a liberated creative frame of mind. Yeah. I just keep thinking about the idea of play in, and that's something like I have, seem to have lost entirely the drafting process for hard math was really long. You know, it was like six years on my own and then, uh, you know, a year with my agent and then the, who's your agent, uh, Caroline Eisenman at, uh, Francis golden. And she's, you know, she was an outstanding editor. They usually are. They're the first reader for almost every right. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're a represented writer, they tend to be, it's either like your spouse or significant other or best friend or your agent. And I've been told that like, Oh, agents don't edit anymore. Bullshit. And then it was like clearly not true. Yeah, that's not true. Yeah. I it's feel great though. You got to have somebody. Yeah. I feel like my agent uh, will be the first reader. I mean, she's been my first reader on multiple projects, only one of which has like seen the light of day. Yeah. Thank God. Um, but trusted reader, good reader. Agents are good readers. Editors are, I mean, anybody who's getting that volume of manuscripts and is parsing, they're among the best read people you'll find. And, uh, I don't know. So I think it's a valuable thing to have, uh, you know, it's a valuable resource to have somebody like that to go to with a manuscript that you've been swimming in for six years. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me what I did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And having that kind of description, I was thinking about that because I always give uh, myself a hard time for not reading enough during the school year. Um, I adjunct, uh, teach creative writing and, you know, I'm constantly assigning big, you know, large amounts of reading. And so processing that and thinking about that. And then I'm like, oh, I really, I really haven't read enough books this month. Um, But it, it sharpens your your reading mind so much because it's not always passive reading, even, you know, what sharpens your reading mind, um, read just processing so much text. Oh, right. I think like, right. Like, so between, um, student work and assigned readings, it's just like, uh, you're thinking constantly about in a, in a really, uh, hyper aware way, um, about the mechanics of craft or whatever you're thinking about. And so I can't imagine for an agent, you know, their brain just gets shaped. It's like when you work a particular muscle, like their brain just gets shaped. In They're a good writers. Yeah. I mean, my agent, Aaron Hosier, she published a memoir. I had her on the show. She's a, she's one of the best writers I know. Yeah. Like just like an email from her mm-hmm. is always just perfect. 
And I know they're tossed off. It's not like she's sitting there sweating over an email to me. We've yeah. known each other for 15 years now. Um, but I, you know, I think like the same holds true. It's kind of an elemental thing, but if you're reading a lot, it shows up in the writing, yeah. you know? And if you're not, it shows up in the writing. For sure. It's like, you know, common sense, but bears repeating. Why do I forget that sometimes? It's easy to forget everything when you were talking about like, oh, um, it's nice to be able to, it's nice to remember about play or like shutting off your nerves. Like I've had that revelation 19 times, Me too. but it never, you, it, you always have to be active. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So how do you enforce play? Like, are there tricks, you know, you can like kind of trick yourself into, uh, like loosening up a little bit and not taking yourself so damn seriously. Like I've heard of writers who are like, I'm going to write in crayon today, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like, do you do shit like I that? I don't know. I mean, like, honestly, it's, I think the most purposeful it gets is just like self-talk, just being like, Amanda, that's. Do like, you, look, you look at yourself in the mirror? Or no, no. Okay. no, 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 <laughs> no. Just like an, an, an active interior monologue, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this. Uh, I was talking, I'm teaching a literary publishing class this semester. And so I brought in my publicist to Skype um, to my class. And she was uh, talking about how I drafted the novel in part um, on a wireless keyboard without looking at, like, uh, connected to my phone. Um, so I couldn't see what I was writing at all. Interesting. And I've heard versions of that, like people turn off their monitor or whatever. Blindfold. Or really? I want to say Jonathan Franzen blindfolded himself for I'm a while. I'm not that good a typist. I would end up with like all caps, gobbledygook. Chelsea Hodson might have gone through like a blindfolding phase that yeah. she was telling me about. But that makes some sense. Because otherwise, you, I mean, you're self-editing as you go if you're typing sure. into a word processor. And I actually really enjoy self-editing. Um, but it was clear to me early on with the novel that if I actually wanted to create like causality, like plot, uh, I wasn't. And, and I was really only holding to like line level language, I would get nowhere. 
it, it would take me so long. So how do you hook how do you hook a wireless keyboard up to your phone? Just through Bluetooth. Really? Yeah, you and just open your notes app. You're writing into notes. Yeah. Damn. It's nice. It's easy. Yeah. I got to do this. Absolutely. I don't remember why. Oh, so uh, my publicist was talking about uh, how that crap, like, mentioned back to me that I had done that with Hardmouth in the early drafts. And I was like, oh, I should, I should do that again because uh, it's a way to keep yourself from taking yourself too seriously. Because not only can you not, you know perfectly uh perfectly tailor a sentence you also just like are not the way that it depending on what tools you have uh put on your phone like sometimes you're not even the words aren't even correct so you can't be precious about it you can't expect to have a product at the end you're just actually just letting yourself write yeah disconnecting it from i I tried uh my friend melissa broder like talks her books yeah you know she uses like voice to text and she just rambles the book into mm-hmm. her phone and doesn't edit it. So it's just like this big mess yeah. because the voice to text is imperfect to say the least. Yeah, for sure. I tried this. I, I blindfolded myself and would talk into this microphone. At the same time? Yeah. I was like trying everything. <laughs> yeah, I had yeah, done everything sure. to try to get this fucking book out of me. And I wound up with this just shit pile of unusable text. Like I couldn't conceive of a book that way. Like I have to write it, I think. I can't talk it. Do you think that you have a different... Because I've been thinking about this lately. Um, we were talking about in one of my classes about... Do you know any of the uh, like the poetics writing of Ron Silliman? The, no. The poet? No. Um, he wrote... I mean, he's written a lot, but he wrote this book of essays called The New Sentence. And it's all about basically thinking about different frameworks for the sentence within po- like within the context of poetry. Um, so looking at things like syllogisms and like different logics and uh, parataxis, like how one sentence is, is or isn't connected to another. Um, thinking about the paragraph as a container, not just a stanza. It's from like 77 or so. Is this so. how you think when you're writing? Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, for sure. Damn. Yeah. It's like really, I, I, and maybe that has something to do too with, you know, how connected I feel to poets. But when I, in, in grad school, I read that, um, Gary Lutz, uh, lecture, the sentence is a lonely place for the first time that describes in part like Gordon Lish's, uh, theory of consecution and like, you know, looking for different things in uh, like sounds and letters in a previous sentence in order to discover the next sentence and things like that. And it more than anything really described to me, um, my own intuitive process of language really? of writing. I, I yeah. feel like that would, wouldn't that slow you down? Not when it's more natural to you, I guess. Right. Right. Like everyone has a different relationship to language. I don't think like, cause I always like, you know, you hear and you read, it's like, oh, you know, you, it's, you, I'm a line by line writer. Yeah. I, I feel like sometimes you can feel it in the read. Somebody who's like really like really sculpting every sentence, like really. Mm-hmm. And then other times I feel like I'm reading somebody like, this is just what f- kind of flowed out yeah. and it's Which not as conscious. Could be, uh, but who knows if like, that's the effect they're looking for, or if they are looking for something that seems like really performative or mannered. You know, it, it depends. I gotta be honest when I'm editing, it's kind of an intuitive process. I'm editing until it sounds right to me. Yeah. Like that's, that's as sophisticated as I get. Well, for sure. (laughs) But like, it's all about defining then 
if you're interested in it, yeah. which you do not have to be. Um, but if you're interested in defining to yourself, like what correct sounds like to you or looks like. Yeah. But giving it a language. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that's part of the reason, you know, I submitted a hundred changes to the novel in the last pass, which is a lot. I'm told, I don't know that it's like the most ever, but, um, Luckily, I had been, we had had a really nice publishing experience, so they weren't like, no, get out, get out. We're not changing any of this. Um, and it was all language. It was all because I had really specific ideas for the way the language needed to feel. Um, but I was going to say before, the idea of talking a book is really interesting to me, but my experience, my relationship to spoken language is so different than my relationship to written language that I don't, I feel like it would be, I would be a completely different writer if I was doing that. And, and I so enjoy my like visual textual relationship to language. It would feel upsetting to me to like talk something out. Yeah. But at the same time, like there's, I've, I've said this before. I don't even know how much I believe this anymore, but I've, I mean, I've said it recently. Like I want my writing to have the same energy of spoken language like to feel like I love when I'm reading something, when I feel like someone's talking to me. Yeah. Have you ever like really analyzed how that happens? Like grammatically or syntactically? Sometimes. Yeah. But it's like, it's not as scientific as, as maybe like Gary Lutz would make it or Gordon Lish would make it. Um, and I think my writing maybe does reflect that, but I also like, I remember, you know, like Vonnegut is a hero of mine going back to childhood. So you like always, I feel like you, it's, it's like your favorite band when you were 16 or whatever. But he said something like, you know, I finally figured out that I write the way that I'm supposed to write is uh, to write. Um, not like I talk, but like who I am. He's like, I'm a guy from Indiana. Mm -hmm. I'm also a guy from Indiana. And like, I think that ultimately my writing should sound like I sound. And how you sound when you speak or your relationship to your language. I mean, but it's like, it's going to be, it's going to be prettier. Yeah. You can't just like talk into a microphone and then transcribe it. It's going to be a mess. Sure. But it has to have, I guess, some strain of that. And I, I guess like sometimes people are like prose stylists or whatever, and they have, you know, they're really into the language and they are able to perform on the page in a way that's like totally convincing. It's sort of like plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. I always say this. I'm like, I don't mind a facelift as long as I don't notice it. But if I notice it, and it's something that makes me sad. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> Does that make any sense? Feel, yes. <laughs> um, I feel like there are lots of different frontiers of plastic surgery that, you know, like options for ways that people can look yeah. that are not just like, mm, quote, natural. Um, and I feel the same. And I'm okay with that. Like a person should look however they want to look. That's right. Right. Um, and I, but I also want people to accept themselves. Like I want people like, listen, you're beautiful the way you are. And by the way, you're 70 years old. You're supposed to be sagging a little bit. Sure. Don't go cut yourself up and you know, come on. But then you're kind of, you know, you're like mashing together like beauty standards and like, I know, I know. Self-expression slash like wear aesthetics that the idea that like, I guess for me, I feel like aesthetics is really locked into or style is really locked into what I'm interested in doing as a writer. And 
I, I'm sure that there are people who have plastic, you know, they're like, there's those people who like, will put gadgetry under their skin and stuff like that. Oh, and like, maybe that's a better analog. I don't know. I heard David Hasselhoff had calf implants. That doesn't surprise me at all. Because he, well, he's on Baywatch, or he was. Yeah. So I have you... a really vivid memory of watching, like, an. M- did you ever watch MTV True Life? No. It was, like, an early documentary series. I re- yeah, it yeah, rings yeah. a bell. I just remember they had a, it was like, a, I hate my plastic surgery, or something like that. Uh, and I have a very vivid memory of a guy with calf implants. If like, I ever, like, the only thing I would ever do is, like, like if you get, like, you know, jowls. Like, mm-hmm. if I ever get, like, hardcore jowls, I would be like... Maybe I would do that, but I'm terrified of having that stretched look mm-hmm. where your face looks different. Oh, fuck. That's and like, hey, you're supposed to sag. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, I say this and I'm like, well, but it's like this kind of weird, like, needle I'm trying to thread. Like, I would only do it if nobody could notice that it was done, mm-hmm. which is probably crazy. I guess if you're super wealthy <laughs> and also super lucky, then maybe you can find a plastic surgeon who does that who can do it it's my completely uninformed idea that it that a better plastic surgery is always more expensive i don't know i don't know if that's true all i know all i know is this if i ever did something like that i would be rigorous in researching i mean talk about a consequential decision would you tell people i don't know i mean i don't think i'll do it yeah I don't think I'll do it. Well, now you say that, so then later you're covered if you I w- do. I listen. Yeah. I can, you know, I am full of shit a lot of the time, and I am always evolving <laughs> my position. So I'm trying to hedge just because I feel like I sound too certain sometimes, and I'm really not. But I, I think we've all had that situation where you pass somebody who's had a lot of plastic surgery, and you just feel like this this little like kick of sadness in your chest or something. Well, yeah, absolutely. I would like my, my more, maybe the self that is not always the self that I'm tuned into would say also like, maybe there's a different narrative. Maybe I'm projecting. Yeah. Maybe they think they look great and that's kind of all that matters. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, they are a projection of my own self-loathing. Right. Which like, you know, is the way we experience life or writers or most people I know. Yeah. yeah. I, what I was getting at though, to tie this back to books sure. is that like, it's like, I don't mind prose style. Mm-hmm. That's like really intense if they pull it off. Yeah. But if I feel it too much and it feels kind of pretentious and mm-hmm. overdone, then I'm just, it pulls me out of the book. But that's true of everything, right? Yeah. Like any, you could look at any craft feature like micro or macro. I want authenticity. Why am I so... What does that mean? We were, I was, I was uh, talking about that with students yesterday. Like, what does authenticity mean in writing to you? Like, I feel so it. You're, you're talking about, like, the idea of Vonnegut wanting to, uh, you know, write like he sounds. Yeah. Which is, maybe, I think, probably uh, a thing that he meant, but also certainly, like, he's pu- putting on a particular put on a particular version of himself on the page. Yeah, no. Like, that was quite manicured. Yes. Yeah. I think about this so much because, um, I, God, I was talking to Monica Woods uh, recently on the show about this very thing. Yeah. About the performative aspect of being cool on the page. Sure. And how I resist that. I don't, but, like, readers don't want some douchebag to be on the page. They want someone who's, like, relatively cool to follow through 300 pages or whatever. Yeah, I can't tell. I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess, and, and like, look, an antihero can be cool. Yeah. A, a flawed, you know, untrustworthy narrator can be cool. But whenever I see work, especially, like, autofiction or work that f- I can feel the author, you know, quite closely, 
uh, underneath the text. I'm always like, yeah, but you're not telling us this. Like, it's very careful. People like craft a persona or like present a version of themselves, like what you leave in and what you take out, you know, what am I getting at? I guess like when I talk about authenticity and my obsession with it is I have this dream of being a writer and reading writers who don't play that game. What's and the game? The game of trying to be cool and loved and popular. But you want people to be cool on the page. No, I'm saying that like, maybe I do. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think maybe we're conditioned that way. Mm-hmm. I think when I'm reading something where I'm like, wow, this is really off. I don't know. It's such a feel. Yeah. And it's so subjective Absolutely. that I don't want to like try to make some grand pronouncement. For but sure. Don't, you, don't we all feel that? Like where it's like, oh, this person's really... Um, laying it down and they aren't hiding and they're not, there's no posing. And yet maybe part of art making, you know, posing can be part of it. Maybe some people like posing. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just interested in the idea of like, so that means you want something that is performance, but doesn't feel like performance. (laughs) I think it's an inherently performative. Sure. You know, it's like this when you're writing, even though you're like by yourself in a coffee shop or locked away in your room or whatever, you know, there's something sort of, um, there's almost something theatrical about it. Yeah. Especially if you're writing fiction and you're working through scenes and you're voicing characters, you know, you're sort of acting it out. Yeah. I think we've all as writers have caught ourselves like you can even perform a scene, you know, like you can physically be at your desk, like talking the line, you know, talking the dialogue through or. Um, actually making the face that the character makes is your, you know, we, we have these experiences. Um, so you can't completely divorce it from performance, but it's just that wish to like scrub ego out of the work. Um, and sometimes I, f- sometimes I feel like maybe, maybe it's an ideal you never actually get to, but sometimes I feel like there's certain work where on whatever day I happen to be reading it, it feels like it comes close to that mark and it thrills me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking about like, what's the difference between, I mean, there's ego, egos in all art, right? Like it has to be in order, you can't make art without ego. Right. Um, There's lots of other really amazing things you can do without ego, but art isn't one of them, I don't think. Um, But I'm thinking, for whatever reason, I'm thinking about how I felt about performance art when I was younger. And I always thought about it as a punchline, like in high school or whatever. I, um, I grew up with an artist mom. And so I was, you know, a performance artist. No, no, no. Uh, visual art. Okay. And, but so we went to lots of cultural events and things like that. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay. So right outside DC. Yeah. Yeah. So we grew up going to Smithsonian's and stuff like that. Um, But I just, I was thinking about how it wasn't until I went to undergrad and saw people I knew making performance art. Um, And there's a lot, there's like, it's a very, can be a very performative in your face. Like you have to watch someone in like a flesh toned unitard, you know, holding a string you know, walking across a farm field or something is a very specific example of something that I actually saw in undergrad. Um, 
By the way, I have considered hosting this podcast in a flesh tone unitard many um, times. I I think that you should follow your bliss. <laughs> <laughs> but I just um, I saw there was authenticity in that in that moment when I saw that work. It was authentic. I had a like both a sensory and sort of like intellectual experience, like the things that you want, the ways that I want to engage in art with you know like i had that experience yeah um and it was something that ha- showed it seems right it called attention to itself its process and i don't want to like too carefully compare different art forms but i find a lot of authenticity in performative text like i i i think it's just an an instance where you can appreciate the actual experience of the language. It's not just the information that it's carrying. And so it might feel like a put on to some people. Um, for me, it doesn't. If it's, you know, if it's something I'm enjoying, if it's a, like a texture of language I'm enjoying, or if I understand um, why something sounds or looks the way that it does, um, that feels really exciting to me. I mean, it all has to come together, though. It can't just be pretty language. Sure. Like, what it's carrying does matter. Yeah, absolutely. Or what if it doesn't? Like, what if the medium of language can do a lot of different things and doesn't have to just carry narrative or rhetoric? I'm just saying. I'm just, like, as a proposition. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, like, poetry. Sure. um, You know, there are different forms you can work in. But if if you're writing a novel... It's pretty tough. Yeah. I'm just interested, I guess, like, uh, ho- really holding on to boundaries in genre feels like a way to limit yourself, right? Like a, a way to maybe even reduce play if we're like t- thinking about play yeah, um, and possibilities in your creative process. Right. Yeah. You got to be willing to just say, well, let's experiment. Let's try yeah. something. Yeah. And if uh, some of that stays on the page and you call it a novel... Like it gets to be a novel, right? Right. Yeah. Genre distinctions kind of, um, they confuse me a little bit. I don't even like to really think about it. I feel like people are like, what is it? I'm like, it's a book. I don't know. You tell me, Yeah. you know, once it's done, you read it and you can tell me what it is and whatever your answer is, is correct. <laughs> do you like to think about books in, in context of other books? Like, do you find yourself doing that when you're reading something or do you like a thing that feels like sweet generous, like of itself completely. I mean, I think generally I think I take each book on its own terms to a degree, but yeah, I mean, there's books that I feel like are in the same family. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I do that thing where like, if I, if I really like a book, you read up on it, you might read literary biography or you might read interviews. You might find out what that person was or is reading and you can sort of kind of trace a genealogy. Um, you know, that, that happens to me a lot. It's almost as if you have a whole podcast series about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think like when I'm reading something, if it's really good, I'm in it. And if I have any thoughts about how it might be in communication with other books or might be associated aesthetically or otherwise with other books, it's kind of a passing thought. It's not something I like fixate on. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And so like, yeah, you, I mean, clearly I'm like not, I'm not at any kind of terminus with this sort of thinking. I think it's like, I like what I like, just like we all do. Of course. And I can't fully explain 
why? <laughs> yeah, and I think most people can't, and anyone who says that they can has decided on a narrative that is static and only true for like a fleeting moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up with a, a visual artist mom in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is a suburb of DC, yeah. which is where your book is set. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so what was your dad up to? He's a CPA. Okay. Yeah. He, uh, he works still works on out of the basement of their house. Okay. Yeah. So an accountant and an artist. Mm -hmm. That's good. You got the yin yeah. and the yang. Adorably. My mom always talks about him as her patron, uh -huh. which I think is quite sweet. Um, but I mean, she teaches and has had other, you know, done other things throughout her life, her working life. Um, but yeah, it, I had two very different models of relationships to work growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I think that's good. Yeah. That's but healthy. both of them worked from home chiefly from home and alone. Um, and you know, that's good too. Yeah, absolutely. Who wants to work with people? Ugh. Although I did, I grew up as an only child. And so my parents were always around. Uh -huh. Um, you never had a man. I was always, yeah, I was never alone, but always without like near other children. I'm going to be around too. I mean, I have two kids, but I'm yeah. going to be, I mean, I'll probably be here. I've been worrying about like, I don't know. I've been worrying. My kids are not adolescents yet, but I'm worrying about adolescence lately. Like how mm. I'm going to navigate that. I want to make sure they don't get all fucked up. I mean, it'll just happen, right? I guess. Clearly I'm not a parent. But... <laughs> but it's inevitable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you, they're going to have to be an adolescent. You go through that stuff and it's not always easy, but I just mean like, I don't want them to, it's like, don't do math. Maybe sure. don't my son. I don't want him to do anything just because yeah. of his like, uh, you know, situation. Um, and so I'm like, I hope I, I hope I get it right. Do you think about things in your own adolescence that you wish that you I was hadn't a, done. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I was like a mess. Like, but like it, regrets or just like, yeah. man, I was a mess. Regrets. Yeah. I, I have, you know, I have, I struggle with guilt. Like I think it's better to just have regrets, mm -hmm. but not have like the personal guilt and like the self recrimination. I'm working on that. Yeah. Um, I think regrets are good. That means you're analyzing your own behavior and, you know, trying to improve. Sure. Um, I just, I, you know, the way that I, the story that I tell myself is that like I was of the just say no generation and all drugs were sort of lumped into one pile and I was to just say no. Yeah. And, um, I came up in like a kind of conservative religious, not like crazy, but like, you know, Midwestern suburb. Sure. And, uh, I think once I realized that I had been sold a bill of goods and that they weren't all the same and they weren't as bad as I had been told it just blew the doors off and I just decided to do any, everything. So I had a very crazy by my standards, yeah. like, uh, look, I was hardly that crazy. Sure. It's not like I was like Keith Richards or something, yeah. but like I, uh, I just, I wasn't, I did not handle things as elegantly as I otherwise could have. And, uh, I'm still working it out. I think I work it out in conversation on this show all the time. Like what is, you know, for like, just to use drugs as an example, like what is an example, um, what is the function of these substances? Are they all bad? Should we just say no? <laughs> or is there a, um, positive role that they can play? I can be fairly convinced that there is at least to some degree. Mm. Um, I also know for a fact and have learned painfully that they can destroy lives. 
And how do you explain that complexity to an adolescent? I know. That's what I'm worried about. Not that adolescents aren't capable of complex thought or sophisticated thought, like obviously, but certainly. Well, my my son is, uh, has disability and it's, there's neurological components and like, he can't do that stuff. That's what I'm, that's part of what I'm worried about. My daughter's such like an apple polisher. She's such like a good kid, Mm -hmm. kind of anxious temperament. Like, I don't think, I mean, knock on wood, who knows, who knows, but I have a feeling she'll probably be like that eldest child who will like keep it together. Um, I just want to do a good job of communicating and if things are nuanced, which everything is, I mean, it gets difficult for me. It's just like having an ongoing conversation though, right? I think in culture, we're sort of told that parents, like you have your, you have the talk or, you know, there's the one time that your dad explained to you, like why you didn't live in the house anymore or like whatever. And that's like, you get your one single narrative. But uh, as far as I can tell from friends and you know, like that's not what parenting is. It's just like continuing to talk to your kids forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. I yeah, that this notion of like, you have some sort of like finite experience, which is good too. Right. Because it's like, uh, you're not going to get, it's harder to just get something wrong. I don't think my parents ever gave me the talk about the birds and the bees. I got it. Like, God, I, I remember like being a kid, like somebody's dad had like trashy magazines and like, you know, third grade boys, we were like, yeah. Whoa, you know? And I remember we got caught Maybe my mom said something to me then. I have no idea. But, like, I never had, like, the... That sounds like a very classic, like, American (laughs) boyhood experience to me. I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, I guess, like, nowadays, it's like you're on the internet. God only knows what young kids are seeing. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I... We had an intranet-connected computer in middle school, so the browser wasn't... Didn't quite go everywhere. But, um, well, thank I could talk to strangers, but it was such an innocent time. Like we would just talk about bands and stuff like that. Ugh. Yeah. Right. That's adorable. Like you could have a, you could have a discussion about like, uh, what Chuck's, what color Chuck's you wanted to get like all stars you wanted to get next or like, you know, <laughs> like just like find different sort of cultural signifiers that you were trying to hold on to because you were creating your own narrative of cultural identity and then like share it, like trade it almost like baseball cards with yeah. another stranger. That's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. I that... mean, yeah, sure. But yeah, it's a really like, I guess it was, it certainly was like the early days of local intranet. Yeah. Um, before yeah. just shit's just spiraled out of control. Yeah. People just got angry. People mass. got angry and, uh, corporations took on the internet, right? Like, who, by the, the way, who make money by pissing you off. Yeah, absolutely. That's how they keep you locked in. It's true. That's yeah. what they figured out. So, you know, in the, when, when the internet was essentially like public television, things were fine. Right. I guess. Right. You know, we who need knows? To get back Maybe to there are exceptions. Fuck these companies that Is are like possible? running like a weird psychological experiment on everybody. It's not even, I wish that it was a psychological experiment, but it's, I think it's just actually... A cold-eyed search for cash, for capital. Well, right? but I mean, yes, but they're but part of their market research and part of their um, refinement of product. Sure, involved like, well, how can we like psychologically manipulate? Like, what are the things that keep people 
Right. People talk about apps being sticky or yeah. whatever, like how long people go back to apps, how so, frequently. Yeah. I mean, like that, this thing, like, um, I think I've said this before here. Here's another example of me saying something that's complete bullshit <laughs> that I said with like great authority. Yeah. Like, can, but uh, this note, like technology is just a tool. It's neutral and it's how we use it. That matters. I've said that before. Yeah. Technology is not neutral. Yeah. Like the, like Instagram, you know, I want to say when it was sold to Facebook, there were like 13 employees. Mm -hmm. Like I think most all of whom were white dudes. Yeah. The people who make the technology that you use, uh, put themselves into it Yep. and they have motives and all of that is embedded in the technology mm -hmm. and it's coming for you. Yeah. Like the screen on your iPhone, it has, uh, you know, a certain brightness setting and color setting that is designed to... Uh, simulate uh, um, slot machines and casinos mm -hmm. and like, you know, whatever it is that keeps people, you know, pulling the lever on those things and pumping money into them. So it's not neutral. Yeah. Like, quite obviously. And right. yet I've said that before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think because probably you hoped it was. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I think it like makes And it's it... so, you know, we're so hopelessly maybe disempowered as a result of, of being beholden to tech in different ways that being able to reason it that way maybe makes you feel better. Yeah, I don't know. How do you feel about using tech in your writing process? I mean, I use word processor. I do use the internet for research. Uh, do I do you turn off the internet ever. No, I haven't gotten to that level yet. Yeah. Like the, the, whatchamacallit, like the app, um, you know, that like blocks you from using sure. it. What's it called? Like it's I, called like, I don't know. I know what you mean, but I don't it's know the name freedom. of it. It's called freedom. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Oof. It's sort of dystopian, yeah. but I get it, you know? And, um, I, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm able to focus well enough without it. We'll see. I've, I mean, I'm in a, uh, research phase right now. And when I get to like, f like deeper into drafting, I've thought that maybe I would do it by hand just to see. Yeah. It's just a lot of fucking work to then transcribe it all. It is, but I guess transcribing becomes part of your revision or your yeah. editing. Yeah. Have you done that? Yeah, absolutely. You... I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge longhand writer, um, but I do always have a notebook as well. I use my notes app a lot. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I also, because then I'm like, oh, I can just copy and paste it right into whatever document I'm working on. Um, but I do, especially I write a lot during like shows or maybe if I'm at a museum what do you or mean, like a, a rock concert, like a, a music show. Yeah. You're writing during the show. Yeah. Well, so it depends on the show, but yeah. Um, I go to a lot of maybe like experimental and noise stuff and a lot of those shows are seated. So it's really easy. It's really rude to have your phone out and be typing, but it's really easy to have a notebook and just have a pen on oh. your lap. Oh, right. Um, and maybe it's not the most pure way to experience music, but it's a way that like excites me to engage with it. And I often, maybe because I think a lot about the materiality of language, like listening to different music or sound, like makes me sparks me so t t let's talk about the materiality of language yeah. what do you mean by that well i mean what we're talking about before about yeah. like like both the uh, topology and morphology so like what it literally looks like what it sounds like how things are resonating with one another like um like the syllogisms and the right yeah. yeah and the parataxis and stuff like that what and, is it parataxis yeah so just which is really just like when there's two thoughts that don't have like some kind of um either 
clause that relates them like a some kind of relating clause or like say a semicolon or an m dash or whatever um so you have popularly in parataxis you'll have like two ideas that don't clearly have to do with one another um but by putting them next to one another you're creating you're like spurring the reader to engage and figure out the connection right right okay i've done that yeah I do tons of parataxis. Yeah. Now you know. <laughs> now I know what it's yeah. called. <laughs> it's not so bad having a couple having a couple terms. No, I'm going to throw that one around. Yeah, yeah. My next guest. It's nice. It's just like a really nice word, too. I feel like parataxis. Yeah. Yeah. It's just nice to say. I feel like it's a word I should know. I'm I mean, not, you know, like I'm not a PhD, but I am a magpie for thinking about different different ways of thinking about language. Yeah. So That's your thing. You're like a yeah. language nerd. Yeah. I think so. Um, but so I, that means that I like to play around with language and see how I can, if I'm like how, how to mimic sounds and stuff like that, like not non-linguistic sounds. Right. So if you have this like super dissonant, um, electrified cello maybe or something and, um, it's making, and I don't mean like literal, like transliterated, um, noise sound noise words right but um how can you create the same feeling that i'm getting when i'm listening to the music via language yeah i guess which is maybe a very poety thing poety way to think about things but yeah i really i mean it's like ex- exciting to me yeah because that's like when it's done well that's where you're taking people to new places sure you know and yeah. you uh yeah i feel that in in books sometimes where i'm like oh yeah that's it and you can connect it to like emotional experiences, right? Like, uh, not only having thinking about, cause you, you want, you think about like, oh, I'm writing a sad scene or like, I want to write a lyric description that feels kind of like leaden. So maybe that means that I have really long sentences with no interior punctuation, or maybe that means that I have just like a pile of simple syntax, like single clause sentences that just kind of like. Uh, have some kind of echo of sound running through them. And so that you're doing it to, you know, to create, to, to bolster narrative, to like create experience of engagement that is, that has to do with like, not just the language, but what you're talking about, what you're thinking about your concepts, the story, whatever. Um, but they can happen at the same time. There's no reason when they they can't happen at the same time. Hmm. So what about outlining? Do you outline? Did you outline this book? I reverse outlined. I so, like wrote a draft and then I figured out where it needed to be. And then I did um, a grid of post-its for every scene. Mm-hmm. Each each uh, each scene had a post-it and I made this like gigantic grid on my wall. Um, and I would move around the post-its. That's a good idea. To think about. I might yeah. steal that. There's all these like... It's sort of like social, my social media profiles from like, you know, uh, maybe six years ago, five years ago, there's just like all these pictures of my post-it walls. Yeah. Um, they're really pleasing aesthetically. (laughs) They look really nice. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to be able to like have like a visual representation of this thing that you're working on. It feels really good. I remember doing that with my grad thesis i like made a colored and this has something to do with maybe the fact that i was working as a temp before grad school so i was working with spreadsheets and stuff but i actually i looked at 
I think theme and then also like different motifs of imagery in the story collection that my uh, that was my thesis and I like color coded it in different ways just so I could like look at it in a different way just to like think about it in a different way. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. I think that sometimes it helps you like you got to you got to find new angles otherwise you can get I think sort of uh blurry. It's a way of staying in the work too and not doing the same kind of labor that you've been doing for forever. Right. And it feels like productive, but it doesn't feel hard in the same way. Yeah. 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 I'm going to be doing some of that soon. Um, so how big of a mess was that first draft then? The one that you reverse outlined? Uh, it was... The book changed a lot in while I was writing it, while I was writing that first draft. Even just the sort of its relationship to realism changed a lot and How so? it got more, it got more real. Um, in the first iteration of the book, uh, my narrator, Denny becomes, became convinced that, uh, the death of her father was signaling the end of the world, like literally. And she made all of these game theory matrices to try to figure out like, how in what manner the world would end and so she could basically like react it was complete it was about i mean like ultimately i i a friend was talking to me about my book in like really nice ways this morning i'm staying with her and she was like it's all about avoidance it's about leaving and when i started writing the book I, i think she's right in in many ways and um when i started the book i didn't know that i just wanted to uh figure i i wanted to write away from pain or like realization of mortality but But i didn't were you were you did you lose somebody or was there so um yeah my my dad uh got cancer and uh he's in remission he's great but uh now but that was the beginning of my book got it was was like i needed i was so uncomfortable in that like very existential way yeah um and i had to do something and the do something was to finally write a novel because i'd never even tried to write a novel before i'd always been like oh i'm not gonna write a novel till like i know exactly what it's gonna be and it's gonna be like something great or whatever and, <laughs> and i have this really vivid memory of meeting devil and unferth and her saying um, we're featuring her book in the TMB oh, book club. Oh, fabulous. I'm so excited about Barn 8. Yeah. I'm really excited about reading it. Um, she's wonderful. It's right up there on cool. my shelf. Um, but so I remember talking to her or reading an interview with her that was where she talked about how she felt like she had to get up every day and work on, I think this was vacation, or she felt like she would die if she didn't work on it every day. And I was like, I don't feel like that about my writing. And I was in this place where I was like, it's possible to be a person who is always on an even keel and be a really productive, highly productive writer. And I think that was more about like staying away from negative emotions or something like that for me. Um, But she was like, maybe you're not writing the right thing. (laughs) And I was like, at the time I was like, oh, how rude. But it became (laughs) this real, uh, this real important guiding light for me in when I was starting to work on the book because I was thinking about, um, like I really did need to write it because I couldn't deal with 
how scared I was about the idea of losing my father. Right. And so I, ha- I had to write. Um, and so I basically threw all of these, um, all of these, all this infrastructure in my way. Um, so I could think about that instead of thinking about what I actually should have been writing about from the beginning. Um, and so I was like, oh yeah, game theory matrices and, you know, like ends of the world. And, you know, this was like 2012. That's, that was what was in the water in literary fiction. Very much so. You had like Laura Vandenberg and, um, uh, like station 11 and things like that going on. And what Emily St. John Mandel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, and then I was like, uh, this, I, I sort of noticed and it, perhaps it was a savvy moment. I was like, actually, this is what's important perhaps in literature right now because of this moment, but it's not, I'm just using it as, you know, um, an excuse to avoid finding out like the full painful proportion of this, what this novel needs to be. Um, and so the first draft was a bit of a mess because of that. it had a lot of extra stuff in it. Um, and each time I cleared stuff out, I found myself having to make remake decisions. And that's part of why it took so long. Um, I also struggled a lot with structure, like structure of a large project is difficult. Yeah. Um, no doubt. And I, I did like, I, I remember try, I remember, uh, this is, we'll give you an idea uh, so I'm the kid who's on the local internet, like talking about silver chair or whatever. Um, <laughs> but then I'm also, uh, the kid who's like, comes upon, uh, Camus, the stranger. And it's just like, oh, this is what a novel can be. Right. And so when I was like, well, I'm writing a novel for the first time, I was like, well, uh, maybe I'll look at this novel that was really important to me in thinking about what a novel is or could be. And so I love the stranger. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I mean, beautiful and problematic and, and has, you can go back to it at different times. I mean, it truly, it perhaps is a classic in that way and that it changes, you know, in, in different account encounters across time. Um, but it also happened, you know, it starts with a death. It starts with the death of a parent. And so I wanted to look at that structure, that, that crime and punishment structure, right? Like that starts with this loss and then there's an act and then there's the con- the sort of interior psychological consequence. Um, and so I was looking at this idea of a, a, a two act structure. And so for a long time, that's how the book was divided and I spent, and I was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but then the, it became more of itself, I guess. And I, I, I understood that it demanded three parts instead of two and that, um, there needed to be time. There needed to be time for my narrator to, to actually like process different things the that things needed to be brought to bear instead of just avoid like pure avoidance and and so just so for people listening um your book is about denny like a woman who uh basically f- like hightails it into nature yeah to escape the existential crisis that is her father's cancer yeah um which i love because i have 
uh, a lot of this in me, this idea of like, I'm just going to go live in the middle of fucking nowhere and get out of this world. Yeah. I think that's a common feeling, maybe increasingly, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like just to find like a little, like, like place where I can breathe, sure. where it's safe. Which, get, and uh, that, but see, that sounds healthier to me. What you're, what you're describing. Yeah. That impulse to, to, to want to breathe. Whereas I feel like Denny is really invested in the idea of like, well, this might be tantamount to suicide. I don't know how to take care of myself in the wilderness. I'm just going to do it because it's so, I keep, I keep saying intolerable and then correcting myself because I just read, uh, Jenny Offal's weather. Yeah. I just and read that too. There's that moment in there where, uh, talking about, uh, it's not actually intolerable. It's like hardly tolerable. And it's just like become sticky in my brain. Right. Um, but so Denny feels as if she cannot bear uh, the existential grief of her, watching her father die. Um, but she doesn't necessarily want to survive. She just wants to not have to feel that feeling. Yeah. Well, that's like suicide. I mean, suicide, people don't want to die. They just don't want to be in pain. Right. They want the pain to end. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think that. I don't know you were when you were talking. I was thinking of Cheryl Strayed. Like sure, I, I'm yeah. fascinated by because I had some. I went and hiked the Appalachian Trail. So like I hiked the trail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not as like my my hike was. I feel like everything about it and me was somehow like. I don't know. I guess she wrote such a beautiful book about her experience. It's like you see it rendered in that way. It's like ah, oh, what a deep, lovely experience. It was a mess too, sure. but mine just felt like I was just like lost. Well, like you're still you, right? Yeah. I wasn't like, I wasn't like reading, I guess I was reading some books out there. I wasn't maybe thinking as deeply as I could have been. I was trying. I was trying. Were you alone? Yeah. I was with my dog. Did you, uh, interact with other people on the trail? Sometimes. Yeah. 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 You make like buddies here and sometimes you're like on the same pace with somebody and you guys camp like in the same spot for like four or five nights together. Yeah. I lived with two, um, people briefly in when I lived in Maine and, uh, they, they had just hiked and sort of, uh, their, their love had become real, uh, on the Appalachian trail and they were living together and, um, they would have, did they, did they hike it together? They hiked it together. Not as a romantic couple. No, they like had met and then it became like a real thing. I think their relationship became a real thing. If you fall in love Uh in Appalachia Uh hiking, you smell so bad. That is real love. Yeah. Like anybody who gets together out there with like ticks and fucking sure. You stink. Just like the necessity of the body outstripping Ugh. everything else. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a bond. But I just have like, they were they're They're like lovely people and they would just have, trail buddies come through and they'd be like, Oh, here's tea, tea tree. Or like, here's jeopardy. Yeah. I know they have like, you have yeah. your code name. Did you have a code name? Wolfgang. What did that come from? A friend of mine. You you can't give yourself a name. Right. No. But where did it come from a particular origin? Uh, my friend who hiked like the first couple of days with me. Yeah. I don't even remember what it, he said. He called me Wolfgang. I mean, in the, in the genre that is trail names, yeah. it could be worse. Absolutely. <laughs> Wolfgang's yeah, kind of sure. cool, I guess, you know, but, uh, that's how you sign the logs. You know, that's how mm-hmm. you introduce yourself. I mean, it's fun. It's like, cause you're reinventing everybody yeah. out there is trying to sort of reinvent. And, um, I think about like, I always like the, the story that I tell is like, well, I just didn't want to get a job. I didn't want to like go be an adult yet. I wanted to like, I wanted to put that off for as long as possible 
but as cheaply as possible. So how much cheaper can you get than living outside? Um, and I wanted to have a big experience and like test myself. Um, and I'd gone to college in Colorado and I love hiking. I hiked constantly. Yeah. Uh, but there was like an element of just like, oh, I don't fucking know. I'm just going to go do this. And I feel like that's sort of the case with Cheryl Strayed too. Like she was like dabbling in heroin and sort of lost after losing her mom and like, you know, grew up in the sticks and had some nature experience, but was mm -hmm. like not in any kind of like alpinist or like expert mountaineer. I totally relate to that book and to the fact that she's like, I just got to go do this. I have no fucking idea why Yeah, that's kind of how it was. And so yeah. same thing with Denny. I mean, to a degree. Yeah. I feel like she's a lot more nihilistic than that. Yeah. You know, because there is no job or, you know, she's not thinking about like, oh, well, at some point I'm going to have to go be a real grown up or something. I'm just, I'm just going to go. She's just thinking. Leave. I need, yeah. It's like my, you know, like when you have, when you touch something hot and you're not thinking about like, I should move this because I am hurting. <laughs> right. You just, you draw it away immediately. Um, and she withdraws as immediately as she can into knowing, you know, being somewhere where she is un I guess she hopes she'll be unknown to herself and then can kind of like sort of self-efface into nothing. Um, of course that doesn't work out for her. Did you but... have any dreams of like, I'm just going to go be in a cabin and get quiet? You mean during writing the book? Or just like in when, you know, you learn of your father's illness, like where you're yeah. like, fuck, I got to get the fuck out of Dodge. I think that I felt a lot more static or sedentary. I felt like I had to be, you know, I, I am, I'm mostly an only child. I have an, an older half brother who lives overseas and, um, I felt like I just had to be around. I felt yeah. like I couldn't leave. Of course. Um, I felt responsible. And at the time I was living in, well, I was living in St. Louis and then moved pretty quickly to Michigan. Um, my partner had started grad school there and so um, I would just like have to, I, I was, I didn't know, I didn't have any particular narrative in my life at that point. I had like a lot of not great jobs. I was doing a little adjuncting, but mostly I was doing strange gigs for like subcontractors of subcontractors of like Samsung and stuff like that, like filling out again, uh, Excel spreadsheets. Right. Um, and it felt my, like, honestly, I was pre like pretty depressed and my life didn't feel like my life enough for it to be something that I had to leave. Right. It sounds really dark now that I say it, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's true. It's like true to my experience. Well, but I think we go through these, I think we go through pockets of time like this. Most everybody, maybe, and maybe it's especially for people who are trying to live an art life. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's never no career is seamless, but like I look around sometimes like people who take to like the corporate existence, like a duck to water and flourish in that. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's not like it's always easier that they're always happy, but like that's their home. And they never really thought they would do anything other than be like, you know, part of something in that world. Yeah. And I can look at that with some envy sometimes like, wow, you just fit right in there. Didn't you? Yeah. What about me? Like, I can't fit in anywhere. <laughs> and of course, like people are excited about what you do. I'm sure. Like, I'm sure you taught, like people ask what you do and you tell them. The and... word is electrified. Yeah. When I talk, are, I'm joking. Being... No, but I, <laughs> I don't, you find sometimes that like a Lyft driver or, you know, um, you know, someone at a party, maybe less so in LA because LA is LA, but like, I don't know. It doesn't 
even before I had published a book, people were like, you're a writer. Like, that's what you do. That's really, it was really exciting to them. And of course, like everything is more exciting from the outside. Right. But I've been thinking a lot lately about the space between, um, how others see me and how I see myself, like, sure. and how I see, how, how I see myself is so connected to my interior narrative of like, you know, all the usual stuff, depression, anxiety, like extreme self-doubt, etc., And like trying to let like ventilate that a little bit. And so like some, I don't think that people with like amazing salaries and different priorities in the corporate world are like, well, I wish, I wish I could be, you know, an adjunct and, and (laughs) work on something for forever. Um, and then like maybe some people will read it. Uh, but I do think there's, there's features of pleasure perceptible in all lives. That's right. And I think too, that like a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times people, who are maybe in a career that they have to be in like by virtue of necessity. Like they, they feel a sense of like necessity around it because they've got to support a family or, sure. you know, support themselves. And this is, this is what I got, you yep. know? Um, I, I do feel sometimes people can wish that they had like more time to cultivate an inner life or to live more deeply. And I think it's very common for human beings to feel like they have a story to tell. You know, I think everybody kind of, you know, it's like that old adage, like everybody sort of feels like they have a book in them. Sure. Um, but actually writing one is a different story. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. And like, yeah, I, I guess like it's just about coming to terms with who I am and trying to find a way to make it work in the world, which is, is what I guess. Is all that of, all? Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, is certainly. what we're all trying to do. Yeah. Um, so you now live in Chicago. Correct. Um, and you teach Mm -hmm. and you write Mm -hmm. and you're, and you're good. You like Chicago? Yeah. I love Chicago. I, I where where do you live in the city? I'm in Logan square. Where is that? Um, so it's on the Northwest side. Okay. Uh, so not super West, but, um, I don't experience the South side as much as I would like to, but also, I have a lot of excuses, but I don't, I am, I'm just like not on the South side very often. So my Chicago is mostly the Northeast and like sort of central West side, I would say like where I circulate. Um, I teach in a school on the Northwest side. What school do you teach? Uh, at? Northeastern Illinois. Oh, okay. It's a state school. Um, with really, I should just say really spectacular students. We were talking, I, I, I am just like, so I don't know. I feel so psyched to, to get to work with the students I get to work with. That's great. Yeah. Um, and they get, we have a creative writing minor and they sort of let me develop classes, um, as long as there's a demand for them. And so I'm in this weird pocket of adjunct life where I actually get, get to teach things that I'm really excited about, like pretty much all the time. Are you going to get tenure? Is that what you're going for? I mean, no, because there's no connection between adjuncting and tenure. But don't you work here? Don't eventually they go, oh, we like you. We're going to give you a tenure job. I mean, theoretically, but not at a public institution. I think that's trickier. Um, and also, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, it's like not the way it works. I used I to adjunct. Have, I've yeah. adjuncted. So I yeah. know that, that. So you understand. It's like super, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not enriching, but you know what I mean? Like soul nourishing work. It's, mm-hmm. It feels good, yeah. you know, and the students are wonderful, but man, the, the 
professional money side of adjuncting is such a fucking drag sometimes. It absolutely is. And I think a lot about like, what are the things that I have to do in order to make it sustainable? And I'm super privileged in that, like in part, my life is subsidized by my partner's job. Um, he's an architect. And so he's not like making millions of dollars, but, um, enough to like pay the bills. I mean, we pay the bills together, but we, and we don't have an demanding financial life. Um, and we're lucky, you know, neither of us is very ill. Uh, neither of us has to take care of an older person or a younger person. Right. Yeah. Um, but so we're able to live cheaply. Yeah. And so we live cheaply and, um, you know, happily. And that means that I get to, I get to do this adjunct work. Well, then you're rich. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're not like sitting around worrying about it, that's, I mean, it sounds like, uh, and like some, look, sometimes I am, but for the most part, like I continue to make the decision to do it because it's important to me. Yeah. yeah. I feel that. I mean, you know, like I'm always wrestling with that in terms of how I budget my time. And, um, it's like, it's if you have the bug to write, I feel like it's really hard to not do it and you can get, you can get away from it for a little while, but it always comes, comes back yeah. for you. <laughs> and do you feel bad when you don't? Right. Like, do you feel like not your quite yourself when you're not writing over long stretches of time? Maybe I feel like maybe more, I feel more of a detectable difference in myself when I'm not reading. That makes sense. Like books, like that's the thing I'm like, God. And you know, right now I'm in this window, like work wise, where I've been able to read a lot. Uh, things haven't been like too crazy, but it often can be. And then you just get swallowed and it sucks. And so I'm going to try to be better about making sure that I make time for that. But it's just, it's, you know, life is demanding parenthood, all of it. It's, it's tough. You for can't, sure. It's not always perfect. No. And know? like insisting that it's going to be, per- or c- could be perfect is just a way to make yourself unhappy. I'll I tell you, I, you know, I notice not always, but a lot of the time, you know, I, I think like I'm increasingly noticing like there's a lot of writers who I feel like are most generative, um, don't have kids or, um, yeah. Or like live solo and like have a kind of monomania thing going where yeah. like they really are focused yeah. to the exclusion of almost everything else. Yeah. I don't feel like that. I will say I have built my life in such a way that I can make my work and I've also been, you know, uh, received great, priv- have great privilege in order to be able to make a lot of those decisions. Um, but I don't feel, maybe it's because I do feel really dedicated to my teaching work. And sometimes I feel like, you know, some semesters I feel like that's an outgrowth of my creative work and vice versa. And sometimes I don't, Yeah. but I feel like, uh, not just a writer who's doing other, who's like, I'm not a writer in the grocery store all the time. And it feels great to be a writer in the grocery store because then you're not just in the grocery store, like waiting in line. Right. (laughs) Right. But, um, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to like get better at feeling just like, uh, being a person. Do you have a process of making work now that you've done this book that you feel like you learned certain things about the way that you work and the way that you work best that you think will carry over to subsequent projects? I think what I learned is that for me, it feels like, and this may prove untrue, 
that every new project will demand entirely new things. Damn. I yeah. wanted you to say like, cause I'm like thinking like, maybe I figured out how to do this. Yeah. Maybe you have your formula. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was, <laughs> because I've been thinking about that and I keep, you know, I keep sort of people asking about what I'm working on next. And I have, I, because I've been working on this project off and on for, for the last like four years and, um, this new thing and it's in oh, not, not hard mouth. But, yeah, yeah. This is like a thing that I've been working on alongside it kind of, or, you know, in between drafts and things like that. Um, and it is, I don't know what it is. Like it feels completely inchoate. Like I look at the file and it's just like a hundred pages of just, and by the way, inchoate is how you pronounce that. It's not inchoate. <laughs> yes. I taught myself that. <laughs> Uh, relatively recently, I believe. I, I've always wanted to just be like inchote. I don't know. Inchote. Yeah, but it's. it's I mean, it's kind of uh, fun to say that yeah. way. Inchote. Yeah, but it's inchoate. Yeah, um, I always tell my students like you should never feel embarrassed for mispronouncing something because it just means like maybe you're a bit of an autodidact and you've only experienced it. Like it's not your fault for not being somewhere where other people are saying the same yeah. words. You yeah, know? exactly. Um, but anyway, I I just I don't. I don't know what this is and I will probably spend the summer figuring out what it is and what it demands. But meanwhile, I've been working on it off and on for like four years. So it feels like I don't, I don't have any answers. I'm not bringing in any answers. The only thing I'm doing is I feel, so I feel pretty good about hard mouth. Like I feel satisfied. It's like the best book I could have written under the circumstances of having written the book. So did it make you feel any better about existential dread and like, you know, the inevitable while like, I was more... writing while I was writing, it made me feel much better. Yeah. Um, and then it immediately rushed back. <laughs> yeah. You know, I go through phases. Like I sometimes feel like I've had moments like recently, like extended periods where I think I'm like, you know, I think I sort of have like my thinking around death sorted out and I'm at some kind of peace with it. And then sometimes I'll have this like dread, just like panic, mm -hmm. like, holy shit, the finality and the mystery. And the, like, it's quite a lot to process. I think existential dread will prob probably prove to be a feature of my project long-term. Your entire literary project. Yes. Well, that's good to know. It is like the thing <laughs> that I find most difficult about living. Therefore, it's going to continue to be an occupation. Where are you practice. spiritually? What do you do? Do you got anything? I'm an atheist. You are? I am. Like, I mean, I, if you, if you have other beliefs, more power to you. No, um, but I, like, okay, let me, let me yeah. just parse this for a second. For sure. Are you an agnostic or an atheist? No, I'm an atheist. So like, I really give myself nothing. But what's the, cause the thing is, is that like, how can you know? Sure. How do you know? I mean, like I listen the science, like a monotheistic sky God, right. Very unconvincing case in my view has been made that that's the reality. I think it's much more likely that, uh, if there's some, you know, something out there, it's, it's not that sure. I feel like a human projection, but to me, the reason I can't be an atheist is just because that feels like there's a level of certainty. Mm -hmm. um, I'm never certain. So there's, and, and I think that's probably really healthy. I think that there's like a, some sliding between, like, I know that I, I agree. Like I can't ever be certain, 
but it's easier for me to believe in something, which is nothing, I suppose. But is it easier? Aren't you just filled with dread? Like, fuck, it's just a void. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. I absolutely am. Yeah. But it does, when it's a good day, it, make th- it makes things feel more special. Right. Certainly. And like, that's the thing, right? Like joy and pleasure and like, uh, facilitating other people's joy and pleasure, like is super meaningful to me because if this is all we have, then like, this is all we have. Um, and so I could, you know, in the wake of that, I could become of, of thinking that there is nothing else. I could become a nihilist, but instead it's like maybe more of a humanist, like of just understanding that this is fleeting. This is fleeting. So we might as well make something of it. Might as well be kind to each other. Things like that. What about outer space though? What about it? Billions of galaxies, mm-hmm. probably a multiverse. Just because I'm an atheist doesn't mean I don't believe that there's other things out there. Yeah, I know. But I'm just like, let's, let's like expand our yeah. view here. Like I, I find it very uh, hard to believe that there are not other planets out there that are inhabited. Yeah. Like the scale of what we are in doesn't get enough airtime. But what's your point? I mean, like, like in, I understand your point well, I think, but also like we can think about that and think about ourselves in context of that. And that can be exciting, but that doesn't have to necessarily do with spirituality. That's just like a realism, a scale that we don't often let ourselves think. Right. But I think what it does to me anyway, is it helps, um, helps me stay in like complete uncertainty. Like we don't like like, let's say I'm worried about death or I'm worried about whatever, mm-hmm. like in an existential sense, we don't know enough to worry. We have no fucking idea what's going on. Does it stop you from worrying? Um, it can, or it can, it can slow it down a little bit. Yeah. Like this is the thought I would repeat. Like we really don't even know enough to know what to worry about. I think that's true. I, even like not, you know, like pulling back from something as big as death, like into just everyday life, you know, it's not like we all, just because you're worrying about cancer, that's what you'll die of. Right. Or, you know, um, I just think, I mean, I, I see the value in uncertainty and I do understand that there's a little like a uh, jockeying for some kind of confidence or stability in saying like, no, there's nothing, but I'll find out. Like if it's some, if there is something, I'll find out the, and it doesn't, you do, know, do you and believe in fine. the big bang? Like if the science is like the big sure, bang. Happened. Sure. Yeah. So the entire universe was smaller than the head of a pin. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Like, it's, it's super cool. It's bananas. Yeah. It's beyond belief. Yeah. I can't, I, it strains credulity for me. Yeah. Um, this notion, like, I, are you a, a big bang truther? I don't know. I'm like, I mean, listen, I'm always deferring. I'll defer to Stephen Hawking. Sure. His brain is, you know, or was better than mine will ever be. But like, I don't know. Like, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. That like everything was just super, super tiny. And then suddenly what, like popped or I, it just seems crazy. Yeah. It's bananas. Um, what do you, how do you feel? about the idea that when we die, we, uh, like cycle back in to, uh, like, 
I don't know. Like the matter or matter or. Yeah. Like yeah. energy transfer. Yeah. Like that's what happens. How so, do I feel about it? I mean, does that sound good enough to you? Yeah. That to me is what reincarnation is. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I understand. Like I understand that. And I think it's. Scientific. Like, yeah. Sir, it's, yeah. It's scientific. Provable. I, though I will say like I'm not enough of a science nerd or like student to scholar whatever um to say one way or the other but it does i mean it seems like yeah we're all like humans are the same as plants are the same as bugs as are the same as a rock it's like that's kind of the deal and we get to have consciousness and that's exciting and it's locked into our body which is mortal and there's a lot of possibility and pleasure in, you know, if we're lucky while, while, while that's around. And like, if there's other stuff later, that's cool. And if we're part of the, you know, become ash or dust or dirt or whatever, like, and, and that feeds something else, like that seems fair. It seems like just to me, I guess it's yeah. about, more about justice and equality. <laughs> it reminds me of when Christopher Hitchens was sick before he died. And, you know, he was Mr. Like atheist, you know, he was one of the, what do they call them? The new atheists. Yeah. It was like him and Richard Dawkins yeah. and Sam Harris maybe, or something like that. But he was like, uh, you know, people would come up to him now that he's got cancer and he's like dying. He's like, are, you know, does that, have you changed your mind? And he's like, said something to the effect, like, you know, this, uh, I got this life. Uh, it's enough. Like, I don't expect more. I think, you know, it feels like uh, silly to him to think that like, I get all of this. And then, yes, when I die, I'm like living in like, uh, you know, at a family reunion in Cloudland. Sure. Which, you know, uh, strains credulity. <laughs> uh, but also doesn't even necessarily sound fun. Like, how many people want to be at a family reunion for eternity? Right. Or yeah. maybe a family reunion is something else when it lasts that long. Yeah. Like, maybe there's all sorts of other things that happen that are interesting and different. So, do you think the, there's no soul? Um, I, I don't know. I like, I, I believe in the consciousness as it is connected to the body, like that it's all one unit. Do you think that we like consciousness is something that we actually are all like, even though we necessarily can't necessarily feel it or experience it, that we might all be tapped into some sort of like super consciousness as beings like that. There's something tying us together at that level that maybe I don't. I'm not against it, but it, no, I like, I don't think that, uh -huh. I mean, um, I think there was, it was a neuroscientist quoted in like a times article a while back who said like, uh, the consciousness is just the brain. I'm going to butcher this quote, but the co consciousness is just like, a, a machine pre like pr pretending that it's thinking, right? Like the bot, like the brain is just part of the body and, uh, the brain's function, one of the byproducts is consciousness. And that's exciting as writers. Like that's really exciting because we get to do all this stuff with it. Right. Um, as people, that's really exciting, but we're all just kind of like meat bags also. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel it's, I feel very By the way, respectful. The title of Amanda's uh, forthcoming <laughs> novel is we're all just kind of meat bags. It's not the first time someone has made that joke to me. <laughs> Perhaps slightly different wording. Yeah. I mean, like, look, I really respect other people's beliefs. And I think there's all different ways to think about the 
incredibly complicated and simple proposition of being alive. But like for me, uh, being in, being an atheist, having, uh, just like durable existential dread is what drives me to make work. And I feel grateful for that as uncomfortable as it is. Interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, like one of the dichotomies that sort of makes sense to me, you know, it's maybe too simplistic, but it's like some people are hardwired to believe and some people are hardwired to try to know. I think that may, I feel like that applies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like, like as an, as a, uh, as a drive, as yeah. a, like a biological or neurological or psychological drive, like people, you know, I look at people who have strong religious belief and it's like, they want to believe. And I look at like people who are like hardcore scientists, um, and they or skeptics, I guess. And it's like, or seekers or something mm -hmm. they want to know, like, do you, I guess, like, are you a believer? I mean, it sounds like it, right? I'm a, I'm a, I think I want to know. Not yeah. that I ever will. I would like to, I would like to want to know. Yeah. And I think I want to know at different levels. It's just not at that spiritual level. I always want to know about the world around me. Yeah. I'm just not, I think that I really do just believe about you know regarding we're mortality all just, we're all just yeah, kind of i think i do i was i was raised in um reform judaism and like bat mitzvah and confirmed and everything and but the night before my bat mitzvah my mom was like you know just because you're going through this rite of passage doesn't mean you have to believe in god like you can be unsure or you know i don't believe in god which i think is the first time she'd ever said that to me um but it became really formative in and people say like the most Jewish thing is to be atheist um, because it's all about sort of th uh, thinking or seeking to learn. Um, but in that frame, that's t wanting to know, yeah. not wanting to believe. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'm in a belief phase on the way to a, a, a knowing phase or maybe not. I don't know. But um, I know that's really just like how I feel right and, now. And art is the way that you care for your spirit, for lack of a better way of putting it. Sure. Yeah, sure. That's like your coping or that's like your practice or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. How you make sense of things. Mm -hmm. um, and do you have a title for this? I mean, all, all kidding aside, do you have a title for this new project? Like a, even a working title? Yeah, it's called LOTS. L-O-T-S. Mm -hmm. As in like much. Well... Uh, also like, uh, lots on a street, like, um, like oh. a, a residential lot, for oh. instance, it's, it's in part about gentrification in Chicago, mm. um, which is Logan square is, has been hit really hard and I'm certainly a gentrifier, um, not a wealthy one and not, um, you know, I'm a renter, but, uh, I, I am one and I have been compromised in, or I've compromised myself in all of these ways as a result. And, um, I, I'm a, I walk a lot places. I, I don't have a car. I use, I use transit or walk generally. And so I've really spent a lot of time basically via this like walking field work, thinking about the space of the city, um, and the way that it is being the way that people are being displaced and like harm is being done 
as a result of, you know, like um, both governmental and private gentrification. Um, And so it's always something I've been interested in thinking about. But I will say, like, once when I was doing doing the thinking, once I understood thinking about the narrative of gentrification being in some ways analogous to the narrative of mortality, it opened up to me that like thinking about a city dying in one way as it is supposedly reborn in another way. Um, Something is lost yeah, in the process yeah, forever. And became about loss again. Yeah. And so I really, it's like, it, it is, it does suddenly now feel part, a continuous part of my creative project. Well, that's good to know. And that's, I mean, you're going to have plenty to write about. For sure. You know, it's like inexhaustible. Yeah. Existential dread. It's the gift <laughs> that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, well, it's very nice to meet you. And I'm glad I caught you on your, I mean, I'm glad you're out here in the winter. You get a little bit of a break from the Chicago winter. Yes. And uh, are you on to anywhere else next or? No, this is, a, this is, I think, pretty much the end of my, of my promotional I caught you at the very travel. end. Yeah, I appreciate it. Okay. It's like, you know, I can't, can't hold on to my publicity narratives anymore. <laughs> right. Well, um, thanks for making time and good luck on lots and uh, good luck with existential dread. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Amanda Goldblatt and her debut novel is called Hardmouth. It's available now from Counterpoint Press. If you want to find her online, you can do that at amandagoldblatt.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at Amanda Goldblatt. She's got an Instagram, too. The novel, one more time, is called Hardmouth. Go get your copy. If you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a few bucks in the hat at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Northwestern University Press. Be sure to get your hands on Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by Nikki Finney, available now from Northwestern University Press. This podcast is entirely free. Every single episode is available for free. The entire archive is right there. Have at it. There is also an official Other People app. Go get the app. The app, too, is free. It's a free app. Coming up next Wednesday, a conversation with Kevin Bigley, novelist and actor. We had a really good time. Kevin Bigley coming up next week. Great response to the podcast lately. March was the biggest month in the show's history, so thanks for that. Thanks for all the good feedback. Got some good ones in the pipeline, too. So Kevin Bigley and I talked in person, but after that, it's all remote until the pandemic ends. But I'm going to keep going. The show must go on, right? Right? (laughs) 